Folks, we're in the second half of Exodus chapter 12. I think it's page 70 in your pew Bibles there. Let's pray together. Father God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our our rock and our saviour. Amen. You can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. How you respond to that truism probably depends on your experience of being a member of the family uh, that you're in. For, for some of us, uh, we'd have it no other way. Uh, we're grateful to God for the families that we're in. It's a wonderful, encouraging environment in which to be. For others of us, that might not be so true. It might be that our family is a place of brokenness, uh, we're confused about how we feel about being members of our family. You can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. This morning as we continue with our studies in Exodus, we're going to encounter a brand new family coming together. And again, it's a family where you can't choose its membership. It's a family that God brings together as he works his salvation. So have open before you that Exodus passage and we'll get a feel for for how this salvation family comes together. Verses 31 and 32 at the start of our passage summarize everything that's gone before. Really from right back to chapter 3 in Exodus. God has told Moses when he's a shepherd in the desert to go into the court of Pharaoh, king of Egypt To tell Pharaoh, let my people go so that they can worship me. Pharaoh, as we saw when we looked at the ten plagues, he refused. Not once, not twice, not five times, not six times, not nine times. Ten times he refused to do do the thing that, that God was commanding him to do. A fortnight ago at our communion service we learned about the tenth plague. And how in in very dramatic circumstances, Pharaoh finally lets the people go. So in the opening verses of our passage, we read that Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said and go. So finally, Pharaoh admits defeat. In verses 35 to 36, we read, I think it's quite a strange thing, and I often wondered why it was in this story. We read about the Israelites asking the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and clothing. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people, and they gave them what they asked for, so they plundered the Egyptians. So these guys aren't just going to be set free after years of living as slaves. They're going to to leave with the wealth of Egypt. God doesn't save them for a life of poverty and destitution, but a life of of blessing and plenty. (coughs) 
And all this is nothing more than God had promised Moses way back at the burning bush. You could check that sometime in your own time. Isn't this worth thinking about for a moment this morning? Normally when Christian people think of what it is to be, to be saved, to respond to, to God and Jesus Christ, we think of all the sacrifices we make, all that we give up to, to enter into God's salvation life. And here in the, the archetypal salvation story, we're told, no, you don't give up anything. God gives. You end up richer and richer because God blesses and blesses. So here the people who are left with nothing are the Egyptians. It's the guys who refuse God, who, who refuse to enter into his salvation. It's the Israelites who end up with everything. Eugene Peterson puts it like this. He says, there's nothing exciting or luxurious about sin. The stories and the advertisements are an enormous lie. It's the people who reject God who end up bankrupt. God's salvation calls us into a life of plenty. Folks, if you, if you look at life only on economic terms, you'll know what I'm saying here doesn't apply in that way. But I wonder if, uh, as Christian people, we need to, to allow this story to, to clean our imaginations a wee bit. To recognize that we're not the people who've made great sacrifices. But we are the people who've been hugely blessed. God saves us and blesses. A moment ago I said that we'd be learning this morning about this new family that God brings together uh, when he works his salvation. Look at verse 37. Get a bit of a sense of the scale of this family at this moment. 600,000 men, and that's not counting the women and children. So if you do some pretty conservative mathematics, you end up with a crowd of probably at least um, a million and a half, maybe up to two or more million people. So we're talking about the population of Northern Ireland here. It's a big family. It's, it's a big crowd coming together very quickly. But we're told in verse 38 something that, that we noticed uh, previously when we looked at this stuff together. Many other people went up with the Israelites. So it's not a homogenous ethnic group. This is not strictly those who were born in the, the, the biological family of the descendants of Abraham. We get some sense of the makeup of this group in a passage, verses 43 to 50. It's there to talk about Passover restrictions, but I need you to concentrate hard with me just for a few moments while we, while we get this, because it is important. The Passover, remember what it is. It's the salvation meal. It's the meal that you participate in if you are part of the salvation community. So Moses, in these verses, gives five stipulations of who's allowed and who isn't to eat the Passover. A foreigner may not eat of it. Any slave you have bought may eat of it, if you've circumcised him. A temporary resident and a hired worker may not eat of it. An alien living among you may eat if he is circumcised. An uncircumcised male may not eat of it. Do you see the pattern? 
Anyone is welcome at the table so long as they're circumcised. Now, what is circumcision? Circumcision is the sign that God gave Abraham to mark out those people who, who commit themselves to, to Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you're willing to recognize him, if you're willing to submit to him and go with him, then you're circumcised and become part of his salvation family. Now, if you're looking very carefully at those verses, you'll notice one slightly confusing bit, and I have to look at this a little bit more when I was, I was preparing. The first thing on Moses' list, it says that no foreigner may eat of it. And that seems to contradict the fourth thing that he says, that an alien may eat if he is circumcised. The word foreigner in verse 43 is the Hebrew ben nekar, and it means son of a foreign god. So any person who is still in allegiance to a foreign god may not eat the Passover. Do you see the distinction I'm making? It's not on the grounds of their ethnicity. An alien can eat the Passover if he is circumcised. But one who remains in allegiance to a foreign god may not eat the Passover. So anyone, Israelite or not, is welcome in the family of God so long as they're willing to demonstrate their allegiance to Yahweh. That's the, the complicated part of where you can relax. Why did I spend time this morning explaining that stuff to you? Why didn't I just skip over those Passover regulations? It's because what we're learning here in Exodus about how salvation works sets patterns that run right through the Bible and that hold true for today. We're learning stuff here about how God saves. We're noticing in particular this morning that this first exodus under Moses wasn't for people who had a particular kind of blood in their veins. It wasn't for people who had particularly biological family ties. That's not what made a person part of the family of God. It was a way of life. It was an allegiance to the living and true God that made you part of this salvation family. And folks, the same that is true in the Exodus as Moses brings deliverance to the people is true in the new Exodus as Jesus Christ delivers his people. It's not the blood in your veins. It's not your biological family that makes you a part of the family of God. It's a way of life that we enter into. Those who obey God, who recognize the salvation he offers in Jesus, are, are welcome into the family of God. Folks, do you see this morning how important this is? It means that nobody, nobody is automatically a part of the family of God. Blood ties aren't enough we can't stand before God and say, God, you must accept me because I, I was born in a Christian country. Or because I'm a Protestant. Or because my family are Christians. Or because I go to a Presbyterian church. 
None of these things make us right with God. What makes us right with God is only and always the same thing. Recognizing God's salvation offered to us in Jesus Christ. Folks, there's another important aspect of this this morning. If none of us is automatically a part of the family of God, every single one of us, regardless of our background, is welcome in the family of God. Maybe your family aren't church goers. You'll leave this this service this morning. You'll go and you'll find yourself part of a family that knows little about Jesus. That doesn't rule you out. Maybe you're here this morning and you haven't been around church for, for years or for decades and you feel a little like you're on the outside just at the moment. That doesn't rule you out. Maybe you're somebody who's grown up in a different tradition or culture or even religion. And your people worship different gods or, or no god at all. That doesn't rule you out. Anyone who recognizes God revealed to us in Jesus Christ and who accepts the salvation that he offers to us, any person is welcome in the family of God. Isn't that quite something? There are no ethnic minorities in the kingdom of God. There's no qualifications that you need to get in. There's no minimum salary figure. There are no exclusions. If we believe in Jesus, we are welcome in the family of God. So we've learned this morning in our studies in Exodus that that God brings together a, a new family of people who accept the salvation that he brings. Jesus recognized that new family in his teaching ministry and and he did an amazing thing. He took this family and said, you know, this isn't just a secondary spiritual idea. He took this family and put it right at the center of human life. Turn with me very quickly to Matthew chapter 12, verse 46. It's on page 978. Page 978, Matthew 12. Matthew records for us here an incident where where Jesus begins with his biological family but ends up pointing to the new family of God. Look at verse 46. One day while Jesus was talking to the crowd, his mother and brother stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, Your mothers and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. And he replied to them, Who who is my mother? And who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whosoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus reinforces what we learned this morning in the Exodus. He says being in my family isn't primarily a biological thing. 
Being in my family is about obeying my Father in heaven. I want to close this morning by thinking very briefly with you about two implications of all of this. One for our biological families and one for our church family. First one implication for our biological families. According to Jesus, the biological family is not the centre of human life. The community at the centre of human existence is the family of God. Made up of those who, who follow Jesus and respond to him. The community of Jesus is the first family. Isn't that something? Maybe that's a little bit more than, than we want to hear. But let, let's remember who Jesus was who said this. Jesus really valued family life. He often preached in support of marriage. He, he valued the role of children in a culture that was very quick to dismiss them. So Jesus is not anti-family. But he refused to make the biological family the be-all and end-all of human life. I think there's a paradox here. I think the family that says to itself, we will give our all to pursuing the perfect family life for us on our terms will in the end lose out. It's the family that recognises its place under and within the greater family of God that will be wonderfully enriched and blessed. What's the implication of this new salvation family for our church community? Well, if it's true that the family of God is, is a first family that takes priority even over blood and biology, then no one should ever be marginalized or excluded in church life on the basis of their biological family status. I think churches need to repent here. It's all too common, as far as I can see, for all the activities in churches or certainly the majority of them, to be focused on the biological family, a husband and a wife and their children. And this whole emphasis then becomes self-perpetuating. Because a church that has those kind of ministries and prioritizes them, draws new members who come because they think this will be a place that's good for their family. What can my family get out of this becomes the, the subtext and the world that, that we see. Folks, all of us, family or, or not, part of a, a husband and wife team with children or not, rather than asking what's on offer for me and my family, we ought to be asking what can I do and what can, can my spouse help me do and what can our children contribute to to, to, to bless all others in the family. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that a church shouldn't support family ministry. I hope that's something that we'll continue to learn to do more and more of in this place. But that's not our purpose. Our purpose is to see many people, married people and single people, those with children and those without children, 
all coming to faith in Jesus Christ and growing in him and finding their place in, in the family that God always intended we would be. In the church family, no one should ever be excluded on the basis of their biological family status. You can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. Folks, that's true through all of human life, and it's certainly true of life in the kingdom of God. Folks, I can't think of a greater privilege this side of heaven than to be called into the the real and active family of God. For me, my privilege these days is to, to experience that here with you. And I put my hand on my heart and say that there's, there's nothing better that God gives to us than life shared together with each other. I've come to know Jesus as my Savior and my Lord. I've come to know many of you, some better than others. I, I know countless people all over the world that I've met here and there. But to be part of the family of God, it's an amazing privilege. None of us is automatically part of this. Everyone is welcome who wants to come. The Gospel writer John talked about it in these terms. In his opening chapter, he talked about Jesus coming into the world and he said this. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God. Are you a child of God? Are you in the family? Let us pray. Father God, we sometimes imagine that you're a God who includes some and excludes others and that the welcome you offer is not for all. Lord, we've seen here clearly in your word, both Old and New Testament, how anyone who responds to the offer of salvation you give us in Jesus is welcome in your family. Lord, help us each one this morning not to rely on any other thing in our lives. Not our ethnic background, our family background, our church background. Help us to recognize that it's only trusting in Jesus that we are yours. Help us to see each one of us that we are welcome. Lord, there are people here this morning who don't know that you welcome them. Lord, by your spirit, move in their hearts and woo them. Show them of your wonderful love and the joy that it is to be in your family. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.